0: Let me read to you Romans 14, and we'll see how far the Lord will bless us to go in the verses beginning at verse 10. I hope that you'll remember the most detailed preaching service described in the Bible is found in Nehemiah chapter 8. The whole chapter is a wonderful read. It describes there the priests and the Levites gathering with Ezra and Nehemiah, Zerubbabel, All the people coming together in the morning and standing with all that could understand and the word of God being read distinctly and the sense given and the people rejoicing because they understood the sense of God's words. They didn't have Bibles in their homes. They couldn't go to the dollar store and buy a Bible for $1 or $5. But we have it and let us love each word as much as they did and as much as Timothy and Mara did. I read to you the 14th chapter of Romans. Him that is weak in the faith, receive ye, but not to doubtful disputations. For one believeth that he may eat all things, another who is weak, eateth herbs. Let not him that eateth despise him that eateth not, and let not him which eateth not judge him that eateth. For God hath received him. Who art thou that judgest another man's servant? To his own master he standeth or falleth. Yea, he shall be holden up, for God is able to make him stand. One man esteemeth one day above another. Another esteemeth every day alike. Let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. He that regardeth the day regardeth it unto the Lord. And he that regardeth not the day, to the Lord, he not regard it. He that eateth, eateth to the Lord, for he giveth God thanks. And he that eateth not, to the Lord, he eateth not, and giveth God thanks. For none of us liveth to himself, and no man dieth to himself. For whether we live, we live unto the Lord, and whether we die, we die unto the Lord. Whether we live, therefore, or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ both died and rose and revived, that he might be Lord both of the dead and living. But why dost thou judge thy brother? Or why dost thou set it not thy brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, As I live, saith the Lord, Every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then every one of us shall give account of himself to God. Let us not therefore judge one another any more, but judge this rather, that no man put a stumbling block or an occasion to fall in his brother's way. I know and am persuaded by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself. But to him that esteemeth anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. But if thy brother be grieved with thy meat, now walkest thou not charitably. Destroy not him with thy meat, for whom Christ died. Let not then your good be evil spoken of. For the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness And peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. For he that in these things serveth Christ is acceptable to God and approved of men. Let us therefore follow after the things which make for peace. And things wherewith one may edify another. For meat destroy not the work of God. All things indeed are pure. But it is evil for that man who eateth with offense. It is good neither to eat flesh, nor to drink wine, nor anything whereby thy brother stumbleth, or is offended, or is made weak. Hast thou faith? Have it to thyself before God. Happy is he that condemneth not himself in that thing which he alloweth. And he that doubteth is damned if he eat, because he eateth not of faith. For whatsoever is not of faith is sin." Amen and amen. And so they read in the book in the law of God distinctly and gave the sense and caused them to understand the reading. I have read the chapter to you distinctly. Let's understand the verses that are before us. We covered the first nine verses last Lord's Day. The first verse tells the strong in the church at Rome, the strong would have been primarily the Gentiles that would eat meat that had been offered to idols, that would eat pork, that would eat unclean meats that would drink wine that had been offered to idols, and that didn't care about the Jewish calendar in the holy days of Moses. Him that is weak in the faith, the Jews, receive ye. The Gentiles were to receive the Jews, but they weren't to put up with doubtful disputations. These are things that are not supposed to be discussed or argued in the church of God. Verse 2 goes on to explain the strong and the weak. One believeth that he may eat all things. A Gentile didn't care about all the rules of the Old Testament, about how meat was prepared. You know, it, it couldn't be, it couldn't have died of itself. It couldn't have been torn. You couldn't eat certain parts of the fat. You couldn't eat the blood with it. You couldn't eat pork. You couldn't eat a, a host of other creatures. And yet the, the Gentile didn't care about those rules, and so he ate anything. And he's a strong one, because he understood the Scriptures had already put aside Moses' law, and he understood that idols are nothing in this world. And so that meat offered to idols had not been tainted in any way except in a man's conscience. In his conscience, it wasn't tainted at all. So it says in verse 2, For one believeth that he may eat all things, that's a Gentile. Another who is weak eateth herbs, because he's afraid to eat any meat that he can buy at the store, because it probably wasn't prepared according to the rules of Moses in the book of Leviticus and Deuteronomy. Verse 3, The one that eateth, the Gentile, shouldn't despise the Jew... And the Jew which doesn't eat shouldn't judge the Gentile for eating for God hath received him. God receives us regardless of if we eat or we don't eat referring to meats and drinks offered to idols. And then verse 4, the question has, Who art thou that judgest another man's servants? We're all the Lord's servants. He's received us and He hasn't received us based on what we eat or drink. He's received us based on the finished work of Christ. Verse 5, another category of trouble of Christian liberty in the days of the Apostle. One man esteemeth one day above another. These are not pagan holidays. These are Jewish holidays. This is the Jew that esteemed one day, and it could have been, the, like I said, the tenth day, in the seventh month called the Day of Atonement. It could have been the Passover. It could have been all hosts of different days that the Jews had. And so this Jew would esteem those days. He would take off work. He would treat it as a Sabbath day because that's what he was commanded Under the Old Testament. And then it says another esteemeth every day alike the Gentile. He didn't know anything about the Jewish calendar and he didn't really care because he knew that that Jewish calendar had been put away by the sacrifice of Christ. Let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. If a Gentile was not going to take that day off, then he should make sure that he had no conscience issue with that matter. If the Jew was going to work that day or take that day off, He should be fully persuaded in his mind that he had a legitimate reason before God as to why he was doing it. He shouldn't be doing it to please anyone else. He should be doing it to please the Lord. And so when it comes to a matter of Christian liberty, we want to be fully persuaded in our own minds that we have a valid basis for what we're doing and our conscience is not wavering in the matter. Verse 6 tells us that both parties could do it to the Lord. He that regardeth the day regardeth it to the Lord. The Jew that took the Day of Atonement off in the month of October, well, it wasn't their month of October, but you know what I mean. The Jew that took the day off, he did it to the Lord. The Gentile that didn't take the day off, he didn't take it off to the Lord. And so we have the first half of verse 6. He that eats in the second half of verse 6, that would eat any meat, he did it to the Lord, and he gave God thanks. As he chowed down in a big ham, he would give God thanks for his big ham. But he that eateth not, that is the Jew that ate herbs and did not eat meat. Nobody doesn't eat because you have to eat to survive. But this is not eating the meat that's under consideration in the passage. He doesn't eat, and he gives God thanks right. for his salad. And then it explains in verses 7 through 9 that none of us live to ourselves and no man dies to himself. We are the Lord's. So we ought to be persuaded that everything we're doing is pleasing to the Lord. We should be very careful that everything we're doing considers others because they're the Lord's, because God has received them, and God is able to make them stand, and yea, He will hold them up. And so we finished last Lord's Day with the thought, are you a bond slave of the Lord Jesus Christ? And I hope that everyone that was here answered that question in the affirmative, yes, I'm a bond slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. Every duty that He's given me in this world, I want to do it with my gusto. I want to do it with my heart. I want to do it with all my mind. I want to do it with all my strength because whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. And whether we live, therefore, or whether we die, we are the Lord's. And we should do everything as unto the Lord because that is why Jesus Christ died for us. You are not your own. I am not my own. We were created by another. We were bought I'm a slave trading block of this world out of humanity to be another. We're not our own. We are the Lord's. For you are bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Amen. It's, such, it's such a wonderful concept. We're not our own. Right. So every time that we try to preserve our lives and protect ourselves by holding on to something in our life and trying to protect it, we lose our lives. We'll never have the fulfillment. We'll never have God's blessings. We'll never be happy trying to protect our lives. But if we give up our lives because they were created and they were bought by the Lord Jesus Christ, he said, you'll find your life. How do you find your life? By giving it up to the Lord Jesus Christ. How do you give it up to the Lord Jesus Christ? Do whatever the scriptures command you to do without regard to cost. Very simple. We come to verse 10. Romans 14 and verse 10. Remembering the issues that we have before us in this chapter are meat, meat and wine offered in sacrifice to idols, unclean meats of Moses' law, especially Leviticus chapter 11, and the holidays of Moses. Not pagan holidays, but the holidays of Moses. All those special days, months, years, new years, new moons, new months that Moses prescribed for the people of God under the Old Testament. Those three issues meat and drink offered to idols, unclean meats of Moses' law and Moses' holidays. That's what Paul had to face in the matters of Christian liberty. God didn't care whether you kept the days. God didn't care whether you ate meat or didn't eat meat. God didn't care whether the meat was clean or unclean meat because those things had passed away. But for a period of transition, both covenants ran side by side and there were Jews that still cared, communing in the same church with Gentiles that didn't care. And yet they were all supposed to have mercy toward each other and allow each other their liberties so that they could rejoice in the things that did matter. That is, everything taught in the New Testament and their communion and love and affection for each other to build them up in the most holy faith. Verse 10. We are the Lord's and we're His bond slaves in the last three verses that we have covered, verses 7 through 9. But, but, if you're the Lord's, And if everything in your life and everything in your death should be to the Lord, but why dost thou judge thy brother? Or why dost thou set it not thy brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. But why dost thou judge thy brother? If we are the Lord's, and if the Lord has received both sides of the aisle? And if I use that expression, both sides of the aisle, I mean the Gentiles are sitting on one side of the aisle and Jews are sitting on the other side and they hold certain things different from each other. The eatings of meat and the keeping of certain days. Why dost thou judge thy brother? Why are you judging those that sit on the other side of the church in these matters that God doesn't care about? God doesn't care whether you eat or drink. Things that have been offered to idols he doesn't care about clean or unclean any longer. And those holidays of the Old Testament are just that. Holidays of the Old Testament. And this was a New Testament church. Why dost thou judge thy brother? Because we are the Lord's in life and in the day of judgment. Why would you judge a brother? The Lord's going to judge him. The Lord's going to judge you. And the Lord's going to judge you as to how you treated him. There's three reasons from coming judgment that we should be very careful about how we look at others. Make sure you're using your liberty right. Don't you be worried about his liberty and how he's using his liberty. How are you using your liberty? Is what the apostle is asking. And I love the why. Why? Do you hear the Holy Spirit? Why? There is no basis or reason for you to judge others. Liberty. Why are you judging? Who do you think you are? Your opinion in these matters is worthless. Except for yourself, in private, toward the Lord. If you're doing it fully persuaded in your own mind. But listen to the Holy Spirit ask why. Because he's given us nine verses already. He's told us that God has received both sides of the aisle. He's explained that whether we live or we die, we are the Lord's. He's explained and taught that we shouldn't despise the one that holds the contrary position to us. So why are we judging? He's going to make it very heavy and very weighty at the end of this 10th verse. Why dost thou judge thy brother? Remember, all the way back in verse 4, he asked a similar question when he asked, Who art thou that judgest another man's servant? When you go down the street, it's not your place to judge another man's employees. It's not your right to go and judge another business owner's employees. You have no idea of the contract of employment between the employer and the employee. He stands or falls depending on what that employer thinks of him. Not what you think of him. Your opinion of him is worthless. And the apostle's already done that, but now he's asking again by the Holy Spirit, and he's confronting every one of us. Why? Why are you judging others in matters that God doesn't care about? Remember my plan is to preach through Romans 14 and chapter 15 through the 7th verse based on what Paul was facing. Then we will take up what we face as modern Christians, in 2013 in the way of Christian liberty. The second question is, Or why dost thou set it not thy brother? Why do you judge another one as doing something wrong? And you know, the Jews, in a sense, were doing something wrong. They were weak. They were superstitious about the Old Testament. But God did not care for this period of time that they, while meeting on the first day of the week, while believing on the Lord Jesus Christ, Still had some superstitious longings, habits, and tradition for Old Testament days and meats. He allowed it. Right. And I'm wording things the way I am so that you will understand that even though they were wrong, right. God allowed it because it was, they were wrong in a matter that didn't really matter. There had been a change in diet. There had been a change in holy days, but God didn't care about those things because neither of them undid the work of Christ. Why dost thou judge thy brother, and why dost thou set it not thy brother? To set someone at naught is to despise them, defy them, scorn them, or disregard them. It's used in the Bible in a number of places, and that's what it means. To despise one another. So the apostle is going back to the third verse and saying, Why are you despising, and why are you judging? I've already said you shouldn't. I've given reasons why you shouldn't. And So we have the Holy Spirit asking the question. And listen, we're going to come up with issues in the in the days and weeks to come that we're going to have to remember back to these passages and I hope that by the time we get there it will be like falling off a log for all of us that we shouldn't despise and that we shouldn't judge. And that unless it's a New Testament commandment and very clearly laid out as as an absolute commandment of God we let things go. We just let them ride. And if someone else wants to do something a certain way, and if they're keeping it to themselves, we're not going to have doubtful disputations about it. We're not going to despise them. We're not going to judge them. We're not going to set them at naught. Amen. And then the apostle says these words, For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. That's right. For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. The strong are going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ just as fast as the weak. The judge are going to give an account of their lives, as the next two verses teach, just as quickly as the weak. While the Gentile knows he's strong. While the Gentile knows the New Testament scriptures are on his side. While the Gentile knows Paul is on his side. He is going to be judged just as fast before the judgment seat of Christ. For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. How does the matter of the final judgment and why is it brought into this context here in Romans 14 and verse 10? It first matters that God will rightly judge everyone else and your opinion doesn't matter. You should be leaving them to the Lord. Second, God's going to judge you for your use of liberty so you better use it as to the Lord. You better not be taking a Gentile position because there are other Gentiles taking that position. You better not be taking the Gentile position because you dislike Jews. You're going to be held accountable for the position you've taken, whether you've done it to the Lord. And third, you're going to be judged as to how you treat the others that Jesus Christ died for. We're going to all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. We're going to be judged for how we judge others. If you judge another person, If you pressure another person, if you dispute with another church member and cause them to go against their conscience, even in a matter that God allows, you sin. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 8, and we're going to give an account of those sins. 1 Corinthians 8, boy, I love the Bible when it's its own commentary. 1 Corinthians 8, if you've read the two chapters, Romans 14 and 1 Corinthians 8, 1 Corinthians 8 is a wonderful commentary on Romans 14. Romans 14 is a great commentary on 1 Corinthians 8, reading the two of them and a few other passages, as you saw in a list that I sent you yesterday. And you have Christian liberty as it's taught in the New Testament, but these two chapters are primarily the chapters we care about the most in this matter. Notice what it says in verse 11. 1 Corinthians eight eleven. And through thy knowledge... You know, here's a Gentile that knows that, that idols are nothing and so that meat offered to idols is nothing. And through thy knowledge shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died. Notice the emphasis. Because you're a Gentile, and you know the idol is nothing, and you know the meat offered to an idol hasn't been spiritually, intrinsically, inherently tainted, you go ahead and eat it. But because you do it boldly and presumptuously in front of weak Jews, and then they go and eat some of that meat, They sin, but you cause them to sin. Verse 12, but when ye sin, that's the Gentile, that's the strong one. But when ye sin, so against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, ye sin against Christ. When we hurt or hold back another Christian from being all that they could and should be, before the Lord, when Jesus died for them, we are not only sinning against them, we are sinning against Christ who died for them. Do you see the weight of this? And so the apostle can say back here in Romans fourteen ten, for we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Every one of you are going to give an account of how much you get outside yourselves and how selfless you are and how mature you are in loving others, in forgiving others, in forbearing others, in being long-suffering. In being merciful. In loving mercy. In overlooking their matters of liberty. In overlooking the differences. In loving loving them in spite of those differences. We're all going to give an account of that to the Lord Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ died for all of them and it was stated first of all in verse 3 where it says, For God hath received Him. God's received Him. Why aren't you receiving Him? And so we have the... The judgment seat of Jesus Christ brought up in this verse. Now, brother, we could take several Sundays and deal with the judgment seat of Christ and the judgment that is coming after death. I've preached it before, and I hope that you'll refer to the outline on the subject. It's very long and very extensive if you want a great deal of information about it, but I'm going to briefly review it with you. It says, We shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. The we is a first person plural pronoun meaning that the Apostle Paul was going to stand before the Lord Jesus Christ in judgment and so were the Roman saints and those Roman saints are lifted up in the first part of chapter one as being outstanding Christians. We shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. There is a fallacy and there is a heresy that falls back on the grace of God and says that we'll never be judged. That is false in the Bible. I don't know where they come up with that idea. That we'll never be judged. We'll never give an account of our lives to God because after all, we're saved. I just can't wait for some of those fatalists and antinomians to meet the Lord Jesus Christ sitting on the throne of judgment. Revelation chapter 20 describes it something like this. The heaven and the earth fled away from the face of Him that sat on the throne. That's right. I can't wait for some of them to meet Him and then they're going to wonder, what about grace? What about Grace. Well, there's accountability as well. And there's accountability for what men have done with God's grace. And there's accountability for how we have treated others. And so we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. There's nothing more terrifying than this event. You know, if I were to say that some of you are going to have a car accident before the day is over and break four of your ribs, some of you would be terrified. If I said before the day was over and please allow my... Ridiculous examples because the whole thing is ridiculous. That you were going to have to go over Niagara Falls in a barrel before the day was over. You'd be terrified. If you were told that you were going to die before the sunset, absolutely die before the sunset, you'd be terrified. But there's something far worse than dying it's meeting the Lord Jesus Christ after death if you have not lived obediently for Him while you were alive. The Apostle Paul, he wasn't afraid of that day. And I don't want to take away from the force of God's word. The Apostle Paul wasn't afraid of that day. I am persuaded. Oh, I better read it from Second Timothy chapter 1 and verse 12. I love the way Paul puts it here. Second Timothy 1, 12, For I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. That's, what the, that's what the Apostle Paul's opinion on the matter. Hebrews 9.27 says, For it is appointed unto men once to die. And you know, men fear death. It is appointed unto men once to die. But after this, the judgment. Hebrews 9.27. We will give an account for our lives, as it says here in these three verses. This is one of the elementary facts of the Gospel. We commonly quote Ecclesiastes 12.13. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. But that isn't the last verse of Ecclesiastes 12. And the last verse is verse 14, and it ties into that verse. For God shall bring every work into judgment, with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. Then the book of Ecclesiastes ends. We should quote both verses together. The fundamental principles of the gospel are found in Hebrews chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, and let me read them to you. These are the elementary facts of the gospel. The foundation of repentance from dead works, of faith toward God, of the doctrine of baptisms, and of laying on of hands, and of resurrection of the dead, and of eternal judgment. It's one of the six basic fundamental facts of the gospel of Jesus Christ. When the apostle Paul had the privilege of sitting with the governor, and you can read about it in Acts chapter 24, he reasoned with him of three things, righteousness, temperance, and judgment to come. Because we're all going to stand before the Lord Jesus Christ. And the apostle pulls that in right here to slow down the foolish, vain, proud, haughty thoughts of church members against other church members because they do things differently that don't matter to God. The plan of redemption, the fact that God chose to save, is not remedial for man. God didn't do it because He felt sorry for men. God did it because He wanted to reveal Himself to men. The judgment that is coming is revelatory. It's not remedial. The fact that we end up being saved is because God has chosen to exalt Himself in the universe by saving some of His lowest scum creatures. And that's you and me, by the grace of God, through Jesus Christ the Lord, and there's no other way. But it wasn't because He felt sorry for us. It was because He loves His own glory. And he wanted to show his glory to the universe. The Bible tells us that. And that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had afore prepared unto glory. The Bible says in Proverbs sixteen four, answering so many of the questions men cannot answer, The Lord hath made all things for himself, yea, even the wicked for the day of evil. In the day of evil, there is the day of judgment, the day of God's evil upon men for their sins. The Lord has made men toward that day for the display of His justice. See, God knew that Adam and Eve were going to sin. God wasn't confused. God wasn't surprised. God didn't make an accident. God didn't have an accident. God didn't make a mistake. God planned it all for the revelation of His glory. He wasn't the least bit surprised. He knew every aspect of the fall of man in the Garden of Eden and how He would remedy it for some of His elect. I mean, for His elect, some of the human race, for the display of His glory in the salvation of them. And so when we come to the great day of judgment, it's not remedial. It's for God to reveal Himself to all of his creatures by judging righteously and showing his incredible affection and love and mercy and grace in providing a savior, a substitute, an atonement, a redeemer for his children that he predestinated to eternal life. It's going to reveal facts. It's not going to discover facts. We go to court to discover facts. When we stand before the Lord Jesus Christ, it's just going to be a revealing of facts. He already knows every single thing there is to know about us. All things are naked and open to the eyes of Him with whom we have to do. But it's going to be revealed. It's going to be revealed to us, and the Lord Jesus Christ is going to give us a sentence of blessing and thanksgiving, or we're going to be ashamed before him at his coming, because 1 John chapter 2, verses 28 and 29 says that we can be ashamed before him at his coming. Yes. If you're one of God's elect and there's no way of knowing whether you're one of God's elect unless you're bearing the fruit of the Spirit and unless you're showing the work of God's grace in your life that makes you different from everyone else, that makes you selfless rather than selfish, that makes you mature rather than immature, that makes you loving rather than hating, that makes you forgiving rather than grudge holding. All those things are the evidence of whether we have eternal life or not. And we're gonna, you know, the, the, our names in the book of life are only known by us if we make our calling and election sure by having those things in our lives and much of them, abundant fruit. But even though we might have our names in the book of life, we will give an account to the Lord Jesus Christ that we squandered His grace during our lives. The Apostle Paul didn't. I thought a good fight. I have kept the faith. I have finished my course. Are we all fighting a good fight? We don't fight our fight against Philistines. We don't fight our fight against the enemies that Paul had to deal with, we fight our fight against our own flesh. Amen. Our own flesh that wells up and is selfish by nature and immature and hateful and hating one another. We rule that and crush it and love one another. And that's how we fight a good fight. And that's how we finish our course and that's how we keep our faith. But we'll give an account of that to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not a discovery trial. You know, there's not going to be attorneys there, well, I think he did this, and I, someone else saying, I think he did that, and some jury trying to figure out what the truth is. The Lord Jesus Christ already knows the full truth. And you know, if the judgment that is described in the New Testament caused Paul to alter his life, how much should it cause you to alter your life? If, you, if you're doubting that we should really fear standing before Jesus Christ and giving account, I ask you, why did Paul pull it up right here? Because it's a matter of, it's no issue. That the book of life is going to cover you completely. That you'll not be ashamed before the Lord Jesus Christ. You're wrong. You're dead wrong. And it's my job as his ambassador to warn you before you stand before him. That you, that you live in such a way that your sins are covered practically. And you can stand before him confidently. Look at Second Corinthians chapter 5. The Lord is so fair. He will forgive us. Any sin if we simply confess it. Yes. Repentance. True repentance will cover any sin. But if you stand before him with unconfessed sin, you're gonna be held, you're gonna be asked about it, you're gonna be confronted about it. Your confession isn't gonna put your name in the book of life, but I'll tell you: confession, repentance is what proves that God has done a work of grace in us. Because no man can resurrect repentance by himself. Not real repentance. It has to be granted from God. Let's go to that passage next. Look at the Apostle Paul in very similar language in 2 Corinthians 5, verses 9 through 11. Wherefore, we labor. Now the Apostle Paul has included himself in that first person pronoun. Wherefore, we labor That whether present, that is in this life, or absent, standing before Christ, we may be accepted of Him. We should be laboring, striving, pressing, being diligent that we are accepted of the Lord Jesus Christ. Whether we're now or standing before Him, we want to be accepted of Him now. We want to certainly be accepted of Him in that great day of judgment. Accepted is to our practical obedience, Verse 10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Notice the similarity. There the Apostle Paul is putting himself along with the Corinthian saints, this time as standing before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. Those things are going to be revealed that you've done in your body. You're not going to be punished in your body for the things that you've done, but you're going to hear about everything that you've done in your body. The Lord's going to tell you. And those things that are not covered by your confession and repentance will be brought up before your face. in that he hath done whether it be good or bad. Remember that when the righteous stand on the right hand of the Lord Jesus Christ, he's going to remember all the good things they've done. And they don't get into heaven because of the good things they did. But the good things they did are evidence that they're the sheep of the Lord Jesus Christ. And they're going to say, Lord, when did we ever do anything good? And the Lord's going to say to them, Inasmuch as ye did it to the least of one of these my brethren, ye did it to me. That's how fair this judge is. He remembers every one of those good things, and we know that every one of the good things we've done have been tainted with sin, don't we? We know that there's there's a measure of selfishness in there, there's a measure of pride in there, there's a measure of vainglory in the things that we do for anyone. But the Lord Jesus Christ overlooks all that because the blood of His Son cleanseth us from all sin. It's a, But brethren, look at the Apostle Paul. Whether to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. Then verse 11. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. But we are made manifest unto God, and I trust also are made manifest in your consciences. See, the Apostle Paul wasn't worried about that judgment because he was laboring to be accepted of Christ. Verse 9. Let's go back to it. Wherefore we labor that whether present... In this world, or absent, meaning to be with Christ, we may be accepted of Him. So Paul himself was laboring. And we ought to be laboring. What is the labor that we ought to be engaged in? Examining our lives to know what sins are there. What are we not doing that God expects us to do? And then doing it. And confessing to God that we haven't been doing it, repenting of that sin, and reforming our lives for God to forgive us. There is a judgment coming. And you are a fatalist and you are wrongly taught and you're a heretic if you don't think that believers and the righteous are going to stand and give an account of their lives. Paul was going to give an account, the Romans were going to give an account, and the Corinthians were going to give an account. And others, if I were to go to other passages of the Scripture. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 2 with me about repentance. We may have to turn to a couple places, but look at 2 Timothy chapter 2. Let's get to the middle of verse 25. 2 Timothy 2.25 The Apostle Paul told Timothy to be a faithful minister and yet no matter how faithful he was, no matter how gentle and apt to teach he was, it still depended upon God to grant repentance. It is a grant from heaven if you repent. If God, middle of verse 25, if God peradventure will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth, to admit, God, you're right, I'm wrong, my sin did not profit me, it's wrong, forgive me, to the acknowledging of the truth, and that they may recover themselves out of the snare of the devil, who are taken captive by him at his will. The devil can take men captive at the devil's will, and you cannot escape until the Lord grants you repentance. And that we want to be seeking repentance. We want to come into an assembly like this and humble ourselves before God and beg Him to turn our hearts once again toward Him, to cause us to hate our sins, to cause us to love righteousness, and to stir us up again, that we would seek His face with all our might. Because in just a few short days, you'll give an account to Him who's the judge of all flesh. And there's no evidence that you're in the book of life if you are not seeking repentance and humbling yourself before God before you get there. Repentance is a wonderful thing. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 2 before we get back to Romans 14. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Repentance is wonderful. Amen. You know the Pharisees picked on Jesus Christ for eating and drinking with sinners. The only sinners Jesus Christ would eat and drink with were repentant sinners. Right. He didn't eat and drink with rebellious sinners. He ate and drank with repentant sinners. And isn't that wonderful? Do you remember Zacchaeus up in the tree that I mentioned a few weeks ago? Zacchaeus, come down. I have to eat at your house today. The crowd starts to murmur because he was a great sinner. He said, Lord, I give half of my goods right now to feed the poor, and if I have wronged any man, I'll restore it fourfold. Jesus said, "Salvations come to this house today. Amen. Do you think if he'd have died and gone if he'd have died and gone to heaven right then, how ugly would it be in heaven? When Jesus Christ is saying, Today, salvation has come to this house, because behold, he is a son of Abraham. Right. I don't like preaching both sides of any subject at the same time, because I fear that you'll walk away without getting a message. Because I'll tell you in Romans chapter 14, there isn't any mercy hung out by the Apostle Paul. When he talks about standing before the judgment seat of Christ. Right. Because for the moment, he doesn't want you to feel any. For the moment, he wants you to be terrified about judging and despising. And you know what his words are going to be? Destroying brethren that Christ died for. Right. You say, but I'm a great sinner. I, if I stand before the Lord Jesus Christ, he's able to pull up this and this and this. And my life's a mess. Well, there's a solution. Amen. Second, Second Corinthians, Not did I say chapter 2? Yeah. I meant chapter 7. Yeah. 2 and 7 are about the same thing, but I want chapter 7. It's about the fornicator, the incestuous fornicator that was at Corinth. Yeah. Chapter 2 is Paul's instruction to take him back into the membership. Chapter 7 is, is his explanation and description of true repentance. Right. Verse 10. For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of. But the sorrow of the world worketh death. See, people in the world, sinners, they get sorry. They're sorry they got caught. But they're not sorry before God. They don't have true repentance. They don't have the godly sorrow that works repentance, that isn't to be repented of. You're never going to be bothered with that sin again when you repent the way that godly sorrow leads a person to repentance. But this kind of repentance, God has to grant it. And none of us had better ever harden our hearts to where God doesn't grant us repentance. Repentance is not a switch that you can turn and all of a sudden feel repentant. God has to give it. But look at, look at the effect of it when it's godly sorrow to repentance. In verse 11, for behold, this self-same thing that ye sorrowed after a godly sort. The Corinthian church, based on the first epistle, had godly sorrow, not worldly sorrow. Look at, and here's the description. What carefulness it wrought in you. Yea, what clearing of yourselves. Yea, what indignation. You were mad at your sins. You were mad at yourself for sinning. Yea, what fear. Yea, what vehement desire yea, what zeal, yea, what revenge, exclamation point. That is repentance. And anything short of that is not repentance. Anything short of that is worldly sorrow. Anything short of that is, I'm sorry I got caught. In all things, ye have approved yourselves to be clear in this matter. Is that exciting when an apostle can write that? In all things... Ye have approved yourselves to be clear in this matter. In all the things pertaining to this issue of church judgment and them harboring and and defending that fornicator, they were clear. What is my point right now? The Apostle Paul said in light of the second coming of Jesus Christ and of judgment of standing before him, he said, Wherefore we labor, whether present or absent, that we may be accepted of him. This is the kind of laboring we all had better be laboring for in every sin that is in our lives. And the blood of Jesus Christ washes them all away. But if we stand before Jesus Christ with unconfessed sin, or if we stand before Jesus Christ having squandered His grace, if we make it there, we're going to give an account to Him. We should be laboring. So we come back to Romans chapter 14. And this matter even applies to matters of church liberty. Can you imagine... God does. I thought God didn't care about matters of Christian liberty. God doesn't care about the matters of Christian liberty, but he does care on how you conduct yourself in matters of Christian liberty. Amen. And he cares very much, so much so that the apostle would bring in judgment and standing before the Lord Jesus Christ. The just will not be condemned to hell. For the sins they have done, but their use of grace will be disclosed before the Lord Jesus. If we understand this rightly, like the Apostle Paul did, then we labor. We labor diligently. the, The Apostle Peter would write and say, Give all diligence to make your calling and election sure. This is the most important matter in your life. Do you know what you would try to do if I said you were going to die before the sunset? You would try to protect yourself in every way possible from dying. If I told you you were going to have a car accident and break four ribs before you got home, you'd walk. You wouldn't care how far it was. But I'm telling you, none of those things even matter. What about standing before the Lord Jesus Christ? What efforts are you putting in to protect yourself? What efforts are you putting in to be accepted of Him? Whether you're here and now, or you're standing before Him, which could be an hour from now. What man saw the greatest terror of the Lord Jesus Christ? What man, be very careful, be, you don't have to answer me, I just want you to think. What man in the Bible saw the glory of Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ the most and his terror against sinners and his enemies? The Apostle John. Do you know what he had to say about standing before the judgment seat of Christ? Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. But how did he spend his life? Selfishly? Wickedly? Foolishly? Squandering God's grace? Or did he thrive in God's grace? Was he in the Spirit in the Lord's day? Are you in the Spirit in the Lord's day today? The only way you can be in the Spirit on the Lord's day is to have all of your sins confessed and for you to be fully repentant in the Spirit that I just described in all areas of your life. Only then can you be in the Spirit in the Lord's day. But for a man that's in the Spirit in the Lord's day, do you know what he says? When he thinks about Jesus Christ coming with that two-edged sword coming out of his mouth and blood dripping from his horse, even so come quickly, Lord Jesus. Romans 14. For it is written, verse 11, As I live, saith the Lord, Every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. Why, in a chapter on Christian liberty, is the Apostle Paul bringing up Isaiah 45 and verse 23 in this context? Why? Why would he want to quote this verse? Because he's wanting to get your attention that the way you treat other of his children is very serious matter before him. Verse verse 11, For it is written, As I live, saith the Lord, Every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. This is the future of humanity, whether dead or alive, whether believers or reprobates of all kinds, every knee shall bow and confess to the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ is the one to whom God has committed all judgment. They'll all stand before the Lord Jesus Christ. That man that was judged in this world at a trial that was not fair, a trial that crucified him unjustly, that man will sit as judge of this world. And every man shall give an account of himself to that judge. I love it when he swears... For it is written, as I live. How can God swear? Who can he swear by that's greater than him? You know, when we go to court, we say, so help me, God. But how can God swear? We've been over this before. It's a wonderful point in Scripture of the greatness of God. How can he swear? He can only swear by himself. For there is none greater. So he says, as I live. Not so help me, God, as I live. He swears by himself. And how does he live? I am That I am. That's how he lives. He lives forever in both directions. He inhabits eternity. He's immortal. He's infinite. For it is written, as I live, saith the Lord. So Paul brings in the scriptures to bolster his argument in verse 10, that we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And so why are we judging or why are we setting it not our brothers? Verse 12 tells us what's going to happen there. So that every one of us shall give account of himself to God. We're going to give an account of ourselves to God. Why did you hate other people in the church? Why didn't you love your spouse like you were supposed to? Why didn't you train your children like you were supposed to? Why didn't you obey your parents like you were supposed to? Why didn't you support, pray for, and give thanks for the government like you were supposed to? Why didn't you overlook matters of Christian liberty like you were supposed to? Why did you judge and set it not a brother for a matter that doesn't matter to me, for, a, for an issue or a thing that doesn't matter to me? So then... Every one of us, every one of us, Paul, Romans, strong or weak, so that every one of us, Gentiles or Jews, shall give account of himself to God. You're not going to give an account for anyone else. God doesn't care what anyone else has done. God doesn't care what other people do in matters of Christian liberty. God doesn't care what other people have done to you. You're going to give an account of yourself. Notice that singular pronoun there. Shall give account of himself to God. So then, based on quoting from Isaiah 45, 23, based on Paul's teaching in verse 10, so then, this is the conclusion, every one of us shall give account of himself to God. What is the, core, what is the consequence of that particular amount of instruction in verses 10 through 12? Here is the consequence. Let us not therefore judge one another any more. Do you want to be safe in the great day of judgment in the matters that Romans 14 and 15 pertain to? Do not judge anyone anymore. I hope that by the time I get to the real issues that face us in the year 2013, we can just fall off a log together holding hands and splash around in the water like children in a little kiddie pool. Because we'll have had the Word of God sober us up and remind us of the severity of God's judgment and the warnings that the Apostle Paul's giving us over and over again here. Mm-hmm. Let us not therefore judge one another anymore. One person judging another in your heart, in your mouth, in your bedchamber. It doesn't matter where you're judging them. Give up all that judgment and throw it away and flush it. Give it up. Get away from it. Let us, I love the word therefore when I find it in the Bible because I love to see the logical consequence and sequence of the apostle's arguments. Let us not therefore, therefore, because we're going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ, every knee's going to bow, every tongue's going to confess, and we will give an account of ourselves to him. Let us not therefore judge one another anymore, but judge this rather. I love the apostle when he plays with us. A little bit. The Holy Spirit, when He plays with us, He says, don't judge, but judge. All in the first half of a verse. Notice, let us not therefore judge one another anymore, but judge this rather. Instead of that judgment, try this judgment. Instead of judging the brother who's a little different than you, make sure you judge yourself that you are not pushing your liberty in such a way that you're going to cause that weak brother to sin. If you like being judgmental, folks, this is the Apostle Paul. I'm giving you a paraphrase right now because that's what preaching is. But it's not changing the Bible. It's reading the Word of God distinctly and giving the sense. If you Romans want to be judgmental, if you Gentiles want to be judgmental about picking on the weak Jews, then let me give you something to judge. Why don't you judge this? that none of you Gentiles that think you're strong put a stumbling block or an occasion to fall in his brother's way. So there is a place for judgment. In studying this chapter, in chapter 15, in 1 Corinthians 8, and the other chapters that pertain to Christian liberty, I believe they can be boiled down to three, three character traits, three Christian graces that a person ought to have to fulfill these chapters. Humility, charity, and discretion. Humility to get off our high horse and not think that our way is any better than anyone else's way. Charity to look out for our brother and to protect him from ever pushing him to do something against his conscience. And discretion to know when and how to apply to whom. It's just, it's that combination. And so the judgment that we have to make here the judgment is judge this rather. That if you know that there's a weak brother that's watching you or knows about you doing a certain thing that is causing him to stumble his conscience says he shouldn't eat meat. But every time you take him out to lunch you order meat. You're putting a stumbling block in front of him that he's going to fall over. And even though you're eating meat is good even though you're eating meat is pure even though the meat you're eating is clean in God's sight because the rules of unclean meat are gone. Even though you're doing that you're putting a stumbling block in his way because it is unclean to him. And you're going to put a stumbling block, he's going to trip over it, an occasion to fall in his brother's way. And if we cause our brother to fall, and the fall here is sinning against their conscience, they sin, but who is responsible for their sin? We are responsible for their sin. Because we push them farther than they could handle it. Well, they're going to be responsible for their own sins as well, because guess who this chapter says is damned? The weak that eat without faith. They're damned, but you're going to participate in their damnation because God's going to judge you for pushing them too far. So if you like to judge others, then why don't you judge who is weak? Why don't you figure out in your discretion and perception who is weak and make allowances for them and protect them so that you don't cause them to stumble or put an occasion to fall in their way. Verse 14, I know... Boy, when the apostle says this, and he certainly did know, I know and am persuaded by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself, but to him that esteemeth anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. I know. Who taught the apostle Paul? Was he taught by Gamaliel the things that he wrote in the New Testament? No. Who taught the apostle Paul? He said, I certify you, brethren, that the things that I teach I did not receive from man. But he was taught by the Lord Jesus Christ personally and directly. And we believe three years in Arabia that the Bible does not tell us about except to say that he was in Arabia for three years when he opened up his ministry and began preaching. And he says, I certify that I didn't get my gospel from men. I got it from the Lord Jesus Christ. And when I went up to Jerusalem, I didn't go ask the apostles anything because I knew everything they knew and then some. Because he, he had knowledge of the Gentile situation better than any of them did. Because it had been hid from the foundation of the world, but, re- be, but was revealed to the apostle, to the Gentiles. And so he says, I know he's, a strong, he's the strongest Christian that there ever was. So he was strong. But was he willing to give up eating meat? Nice. Was he willing to give up drinking wine that had been offered to idols? Yeah. Yes. I know and am persuaded by the Lord Jesus. Jesus has taught me personally that there is nothing unclean of itself. For you to have a ham sandwich or a pepperoni pizza, there's nothing unclean about it. For you to eat meat that's been offered to Jupiter in Rome, there's nothing unclean about it. Go ahead and eat it. I know. Jesus Christ persuaded me. Jesus Christ taught me. He's the strongest of the strong, the Apostle Paul was. But, but though I know that, and though Jesus Christ knows that, and though Jesus Christ taught me and persuaded me on this matter of meats, to him that esteemeth anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. If a Jew still was wrapped up in the habits and the traditions of his family for 1,500 years, since Moses and Mount Sinai, that they could not eat certain kinds of meats, and that they should not ever do anything that was even close to idolatry, then that meat was unclean to that person. Their conscience made the difference. It was unclean to them. And for them to eat it, it would defile their conscience because they knew they knew that in their conscience they had sinned against God. Your conscience is a very powerful thing. Conscience cannot be an excuse because conscience needs to be trained. But conscience, until it's trained, the Lord is merciful toward an untrained conscience like he is here. Because look at what Paul said, I know when I'm persuaded that it's no unclean. But to a man that thinks it's unclean because of all the training he's received in his life, to him it is unclean. The conscience becomes more important than God's change of covenants. Next verse. But if thy brother be grieved with thy meat. So we're talking about strong Gentiles eating meat. Whether it's a pork sandwich or whether they're just eating meat. And the weak Jewish brother was eating herbs. He became a vegetarian because he just couldn't trust any meat sold in Rome. But if thy brother be grieved with thy meat, now walkest thou not charitably. You're not loving that brother. You are pushing your liberty, even in a matter where Jesus Christ is taught that all meats are clean. In a matter like that, if you push it in front of others and you put a stumbling block in front of them where they fall, what is their fall? They sin against their conscience. When they sin against their conscience, they lose fellowship with God and you have destroyed their relationship with God. If thy brother be grieved with thy meat, notice, thy meat, you're just having to eat meat and causing them to fall, now walkest thou not charitably. You don't have any love. You're not showing the love and protection that you should for the other church members. Destroy not him with thy meat for whom Christ died. How can you destroy him? Does that mean send him to hell? No. No. How can you destroy them? You can destroy their peace with God. You can destroy their walk with God. You can destroy their power by the Holy Spirit because they sinned against their conscience. If Jesus says, this meat is okay, but your conscience from all those years as a Jew in your family for 1,500 years says that meat just, I can't eat it. I've never eaten pork. I can't do it. If you eat that pork, you sin against your conscience. And sinning against your conscience is a sin. Right. And it brings damnation. It brings God's judgment. God, would, Because look, just think. Here's, here's a man, here's this weak Jew. In his mind, in his mind, and in his mind only. Because God has already said it's okay, and Paul has said it's okay. But in his mind, his conscience says... It is sin if I eat that meat. It's against God if I eat that meat. If he goes ahead and eats it, what's he doing? He's sinning against God. Because in his mind, God does not want him to eat that meat. But he goes ahead and does it anyway. And why did he do it? Because he was grieved with you by pushing your liberty in front of him over and over again. And you are not walking charitable. You're not protecting him. You're not loving him by giving up your liberty to help him. But if thy brother be grieved with thy meat, in verse 15, now walkest thou not charitably. You are now guilty of not loving the brethren, you're hating the brethren. And look what it says, destroy not him with thy meat for whom Christ died. Right. Here the Lord Jesus Christ died for, for church members that are in the church that these Romans were in, and yet you're destroying him, even though Christ died to save him. This is a serious matter. Right. The meat doesn't matter. Paul said... I know that there is all meats are clean. I'm persuaded by the Lord Jesus. The meats don't matter. The holidays don't matter. The meat offered to idol doesn't matter. But if you cause another person to sin, then it matters. It matters huge. You're destroying someone that Jesus Christ died for. You are not living charitably. You're not loving the brethren like you are taught to in the New Testament Scriptures. Verse 16, Let not then your good be evil spoken of. What is their good? that they knew that all meats were clean. They were the strong ones. They knew what Paul knew. Paul knew what he knew because Jesus Christ had persuaded him. Let not then your good be evil spoken of. Do you mean to tell me that there are times when I shouldn't do good? There are times when you shouldn't do good. Well, when are there times when I shouldn't do good? When the good is in a matter of Christian liberty and you happen to be on the strong side the true side, the correct side, there are times you should give that up. Though the Apostle Paul would say here, I know and am persuaded by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself, he would say in 1 Corinthians 8 and verse 13, I will not eat flesh while the world stands if it causes my brother to stumble. And so we shouldn't do good in matters of Christian liberty when that good will result in evil on the part of others who have a weaker conscience. That's what... Verse 16 is teaching us. Let not then your good be evil spoken of. If you love others, then keep your good, keep your Christian liberty private, at home, as he's going to teach us here in a few verses. And don't push it in public, and don't talk about it in public, and don't demonstrate it in public. Protect the weak brother. Love the brother. Christ died for him. Don't destroy him by pushing your liberty. Because if we sin against conscience in any matter, In the matters that I'm going to bring up that affect us in 2013, there's consciences involved. Mm -hmm. There's degrees of latitude that a conscience will allow. And if you push somebody by promoting or crusading for your particular position on that liberty, you could cause another person to sin against their conscience. In sinning against their conscience, they sin. They get destroyed in their relationship with God. Damnation comes upon them and you are an accessory and an accomplice to their crime. May the Lord bless the preaching of His Word for us to understand these things, for us to humble ourselves before them. And if there's one thought from these verses 10 through 16 that we ought to remember, it's that we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Therefore, let's be like Paul and labor that we may be accepted of Him, whether present or absent. In this life or standing before Him let us labor, let us seek repentance, let us examine ourselves and repudiate every sin in our lives. Amen. Amen.